0: Good morning. There we go. I can hear me myself. It's kind of frightening. Um, you know, it was two years ago. I was here last, and um, uh, we had a very unusual event on Friday night. And on Friday night, one of the uh, young people dislocated their shoulder in the gym. Um, I had an early morning the next morning on Saturday, and so I went to bed. <laughs> and so at 10.15, my dear Dear, dear friend, Andy Moffat calls me, and here's how it goes. Hey, Steve, we're over here at the gym, and we think one of the young ladies dislocated her shoulder. Now, we've YouTubed it, and if you talk us through, I think we can put it back. (laughs) Is Andy here? Where are you, Andy? (laughs) Yes, I know. Do you remember that? (laughs) <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> And uh, I go, I'll be right there. <laughs> so I get in. I made record time from the Smith's house I might end. And I figure if I got stopped, I'd say, I'm going to put a shoulder back. So you need to let me go. You know? So I get in here, and there's like 35 young people in there. And they're all looking at me. They're not looking at Andy. They're looking at me. And I go, okay. And I think it was Bob says, well, what do we need to do? Uh, usually I have like 10 nurses and three this and four that and an x-ray, but let's just put her in the back room just in case she screams. No one will hear her. (laughs) And so we move her in the back room, and um, I think, uh, was it Sebastian? He was here, and he was pulling on this way, and I was pulling on the arm. And the idea in this medieval, medieval torture maneuver is to fatigue the muscles so that the humeral head will fall back into socket. Now normally I give you lots of drugs to do that too. <laughs> the kind of drugs that, you know, you like kind of drugs. And we have nothing. I have no IV, I have nothing. And I'm saying, "Well, let's just kind of pull." And I'm praying, "Help her relax, help her relax." And within a few minutes, she's just talking away, chatting away, and it goes thunk. And you could actually literally see it. And I almost lost three other people at that time as they, you know, Bob was kind of, you know. And I'm thinking, if he goes down, we're just going to let him go. <laughs> so I remembered that was two years ago last night. Okay. And so tonight, or last night when I was going to bed, I was thinking, I'm going to put it on do not disturb. <laughs> Okay, enough fooling around. (sighs) You know, we're going to talk about the character of God because um, there's something that happens when you understand who someone else is. And when you begin to to contemplate the Lord Jesus, you are uh, as representation of God and and, uh, glory and truth you start to think differently about him. There is a a story in my family. It was one of my sons, none of which are here that this is applicable to, so don't ask them. Um, But I remember one of my sons was in his teen years, and he was playing basketball. Now, his coach was relatively young. He was in his mid-20s or so. And and, um, his coach, uh, we invited him to one of our discipleship classes. we had hosted. Many of you came. Those distant Andy actually came to, to John Heller and our home, and our, Shannon and I's home, and we would we would have these classes, and and um, well, my co- the, my son's coach came to that, and uh, so after a few of those sessions, my co- or my son's coach said to him, "Well, you know, your dad, he's an, he's a, he's a really all right kind of guy," and my son goes. He is. (laughs) And for the first time in his life, he maybe heard someone else speak well of his father, and all of a sudden, I saw his opinion of his dad go, whoop. (laughs) Now, don't be upset. It's a normal phenomenon. Happens to everybody. Happened to me. I just didn't know it was going to happen in that way. You see, this is why we talk about the character of God. Because I think... The mo- most of the voices you hear in your consciousness 24-7 is to demean who God is. And it, it, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you. And after a while, sometimes you're tempted to think the last thing you heard about somebody demeaning God and talking about his uh, unpredictability. And you think, well, yeah, that is kind of true, isn't it? And it's not true. And so last night we talked, uh, I I tried to cram three messages into one. You might not have caught that because we were kind of going fast. But I tried to talk a little bit about the uh, omniscience or the um, omnipresence of God and the omnipotence of God. And just briefly mention them and then we focused our major attention on the omniscience of God. And we, we talked about several facets including the last one of not only its inescapability but it has a profound effect upon you. We tried to make several applications along the way that, that uh, sort of talked about our, our cognition, you know, our awareness of, that, of who he is, but also our responsiveness to that. Now, today, I want to transition uh, to this idea of the righteousness of God. And in order to do this, we're going to talk about it from several key phrases. We'll talk about its basis, its concept. We'll talk about its, its expression its implication, some illustration. And then if we have time, I'd like to talk about it in terms of salvation. So that's a very robust agenda. It's gonna be quite overwhelming. And you have to tell me what time I'm supposed to stop. Who can tell me? Somebody official. It's okay, you won't hurt my feelings unless it's 10 minutes from now. Half an hour? 10.15? I heard 10.30, you said 10.30. (laughs) I know what you're doing. If I say 1015, I'll stop at 1030. Yeah, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, what, that's why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> all right. So having said all that, let's begin in the normal, traditional, appropriate way, and let's ask the Lord. Dear Father, this morning as we come into your presence, we, we rejoice that the first thing we can do this morning is to come and open up the Word of God and consider you. And it is my prayer, Father, that you would fill this moment with your spirit in such a way that every single heart is open and attentive to have a listening ear like the churches of Revelation were exhorted to listen to the spirit of God and then to respond to the spirit of God's prompting, to the spirit of God's movement and exhortation and correction. And Father, we'd like to ask that you would do so because you love your people, because you, you have such a big heart towards your people that you could not not answer such prayer, especially when we're asking to let us know you more, to let us see you more, to glory in who you are. Father, would that not move you to allow your spirit to do the inexplicable, the extraordinary, and we might even say the miraculous this morning, where there is a transaction between the God of heaven and his people with whom he dwells. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the righteousness of God demands some type of consideration. We have to build a base for this. And the idea of this base is the holiness of God. Now, I think I do swipe this way. Is that right, Patrick? This way. There we go. Now, in order for there to be a righteousness of God, we first have to discuss his holiness. And and the reason why we have to do that is because a righteousness will eventually be defined this morning as the right standard, nothing fancy about it. But you have to ask the question, what is it that makes God have the ability, have the, the right or the uh, place, the privilege to determine what's right? Why can't I determine what's right? Why can't uh, uh, the greatest leader of the planet determine what's right? There will be a coming day in which the Antichrist will determine what's right, and you'll find that it's altogether wrong. So, what is, what is it about God's credentials? God's resume, God's curriculum vitae that allows him to do what he does in righteousness. Well, that goes back to his holiness. Now, I have to spend a few minutes to explain holiness, and it takes a little bit to get it out, so bear with me. So holiness has an embedded concept and I'm, I'm afraid I'm just going to tumble, and you'll get it on film. It'll be on YouTube, and it'll be at the next conference. Yeah, I know. Thank you. <laughs> now, the idea of holiness has this idea of separation. All right, That's a real Im- Im- inherent concept to it. And when we think of separation in our culture, we think negatively, like we think of separating groups and class warfare and sort of ethnic um, uh, ethnic differences, and we separate into ethnicities and we feud with one another. That's not the concept of separation with God. Now, the concept of separation of God is elevated above that, and it has to deal not so much with this class and and differences between each other, but that God. is separate from all other uh, elements of created order. God exists above that. We sort of illustrated that last night in talking about the carpenter and the table, that he isn't actually part of the wood. He stands outside of the object, orchestrating the object and its craftsmanship. Now, this is God in his holiness. That concept is not lost in the character of God. Now, the holiness of God means that he has a separation. There's a distance. Now, pre fall pre-fall, the created order had a very similar sort of uh, purity and unblemishness to it, right? Think about God made it and he called it good. What do you think that good meant? That everything worked well? Sure, it did mean that, but it it also meant that there was an extension of, of his purity. Everything worked well because it was without contamination, And this is the idea of holiness. There is a sense of separation from what was made, but it's an extension of who he is. Now, when sin enters the world, holiness is much, there's a greater contrast. And so then we come along because we're post-sin, right? We're, we're after Adam. And we can see that, oh, God is separated from us. And look, our sin and what our sin does is it not... It just doesn't create a gap. It sends us into the abyss. It sends us away from the direction of God so that the distance between us is even greater. Now, holiness highlights that dimension. Not because God's changed. It's because we moved away. So we can see that there has to be a separation from sin. That's the easy understanding of holiness, that's the most obvious one. But holiness is more than that. Holiness is not just a separation from sin, but it's an elevation of God. And the idea of how is God elevated with holiness? Well, it's it's this idea that he exists Above the created order, you realize he could make another whole earth somewhere else, and it would be perfect, right? It's that he has a distinct idea, and it comes out in the word the words of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Firstborn of creation, not that he was the first in the order of created order; that's that would be um, cultish. Um, but it's it, it's the idea that he existed outside of the created order and originated it. And so there's a sense of an elevation of his his pristine purity. All right? It's a very hard concept. We're talking about things that are a bit abstract, and, and yet... When you think about it that way, that God has that distance between the created order, and when the created order went downward with its sin, and it it, it shows the uh, bigger contrast between who He is and what has happened to the human race, we sort of get that idea. Now, what happens in the New Test or excuse me, the Old Testament is God spends a great deal of time explaining and illustrating His holiness. So, for example, the tabernacle. Tabernacle is constructed with uh, orders of service that highlight God's holiness that you, you, you have to bring sacrifices to the brazen altar, a real, a real graphic picture of the work of Christ on the cross. And you can't approach into the tent of the meeting until you go to the outside altar, which is outside the tent of meeting, outside the presence of, of the Holy of Holies. You can't come in until you go past the brazen altar and the sacrifice is made. There's a, there's a distance. There's a, there's a protocol. And then, when you get into the holy of uh, uh, the the holy of um, the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, there's a protocol there, and you have to do things just right. Nadab and Abihu failed there, and you see the holiness of God come to brilliant color at that moment—no pun intended. And in then you can't get into the holy of holies un- unless it's one time a year. Can you imagine that? Let me ask you, how many times this year did you enter the throne of God in heaven? Innumerable. It's called prayer. And you didn't have to bring a sacrifice, and you didn't have to wait to Yom Kippur. You didn't have to wait to the Day of Atonement. You didn't have to, to plan the goats and to have them ready to go, and you didn't have to have the celebration. You bowed your head as we did 10 minutes ago, and we were in the presence of the Holy of Holies. Amen? Amen. Now that's what I call genius. And yet, God is saying in that pictorial demonstration that you just can't barge in. You see, there's a protocol. And think about this. Remember the the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And what was embroidered on that curtain? The cherubim. And what did the cherubim do in the first mention in the, in the Old Testament? They held the flaming sword so that if you came back into the Garden of Eden, you would be shish You know, they weren't there to pick your teeth. They they're there to kill you. I wondered if any human tried to do that. Now, see, the point that I'm saying is that there is a real protection, if you will, of the holiness of God. And then when you would come in, you would come in with with a sense of of tremendous fear because you might mess up and lose your life. And you would come not uh, without anything to bring, but you would come with an offering. And it wasn't something you made, and it wasn't something you cooked. It was an animal that you sacrificed. And remember, when you sacrifice an animal, you, the offer, are bloodied from stem to stern with the lifeblood of another being. It's very graphic, isn't it? And by the way, they were white, so it's kind of crazy. So you have this, this movement in, and, and and that's where when the blood is sprinkled on and before the, the Ark of the Covenant seven times, as if to say, it's an element of perfection in my presence where the sacrifice of another being is put in your place. That is when I can make atonement. I can cover your sin. And it's so graphic because you've got the Ark of the Covenant with the three items which actually come from rebellious acts inside the Ark of the Covenant, the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the second copy of the deck underneath the mercy seat. And that's the beauty of it all. The righteousness of God is standing strong and the holiness of God is pristine and pure. The cherubim are right there ready to deal with a breach of his holiness and the mercy seat covers it all. I mean, you gotta gotta admit, God's very good at being very creative and giving us these sort of pictures to tell us that his holiness... Is nothing to be trifled with. Now, because of his holiness, we we can therefore say that if we could, in terms of moral decision making, you know, determining what's right and wrong for behavior, because he's holy, pure, separated from sin, elevated in terms of his creative work, he really is the only one qualified to determine what's right and what's wrong. Can you agree? He's The only one qualified. Now, that's, that's the key here. God is holy, and therefore, he is the benchmark for what we can consider right and wrong. He has the right credentials. Now, because he's holy, I'm supposed to, there we go, he has the purity. Thus, he has no bias. Have you ever, you ever been uh, with a, a superior, uh, somebody has higher in rank than you? Maybe a job situation, maybe uh, you're working with a CEO or CFO of a company, or just your boss, and they have somebody working in your team, and that, that person is a family member, and they show favoritism to the family member. You know, do you need to get off work this afternoon? Yeah, go ahead, don't worry about it. We got other people to cover you. When it's your turn to ask off for work for the afternoon, they say, you can't do that. Well, wait a minute, you let, you, you let, your, you let your nephew go, why can't I go? Well, it's different. You ever been in that situation where you're sort of treated with bias? You know what that does to you? It just makes you hurt somebody or slash their tires or something. It's just like, it's not right. Why is it not right? Why, why, why is it not right? Because it, it's, it's just not fair. See, God doesn't have any trouble with those kinds of things. He doesn't, he's not prone to bias. He's not prone to compromise. He's not, well, if you kind of, you know, put a little something in the offering, well, we'll think about it see what we can do. God doesn't do that. He's holy. He, He doesn't have that compromise. He doesn't have this idea of unfairness. There's no partiality. That's where I get this because the scripture is very clear. There is no partiality with God. He is impartial. He doesn't look at one people group with more favoritism than the other. He doesn't look at one ethnicity with more favoritism than the other. He doesn't look at somebody's um, achievements with more favoritism than the other. He doesn't look at us any different. This is all through the life of the Lord Jesus, how he looked at the Pharisee. And that one guy that came to him, he was a lawyer, I think, and he asked about the law. And the the Lord looks at him and says, and having loved him. And then you move over to the leper, the despised of society, and the Lord Jesus reaches down and touches him. You see, there's there's no impartiality with our God. It is such an important aspect that when you get to the book of James, James highlights this idea and he uses it in the context of those who would come into the, uh, to the church with well-to-do presentation, uh, wealth and, and notoriety and esteem that is based all on external features. And James says, Don't treat anybody different. God is not impartial. You see, that's how important impartiality is with God because it goes right back to his holiness, which has set the standard for what is right and wrong. So That's why we don't do that. So I actually believe we should be assemblies that are made of quite a bit of diversity. Why is that? Because that's how God functions. And I like that. Our little assembly back in, in Kansas City, you know, we, we counted up one time. I think at our peak, we had 15 ethnicities. You talk about potluck dinner. <laughs> I mean, you go to any country you want, right? I mean, we had sushi, we had Korean food, we had German food, we had Canadian food. Oh, sorry, In other words, God doesn't have any agenda for secondary gain. This is the beauty of having God in the Bible as your God. He doesn't mess with all this garbage, right? Now look at the, at the next thing here. Like, uh, oops, I did that wrong. <laughs> That'll give you a seizure if I give that up. Okay, so not only does he have any, uh, none of the negatives, he has all of the positives, and I've listed some here. Honesty. How many of you like to deal with an honest boss? Huh? Not bad, right? An honest boss—they're good guys. We like them. We like them a lot. How about integrity? This word—it's funny. I'm—I'm um, I'm not much of a business person. Bobby's got these degrees and MBAs and NBA. and I don't know—he's got everything. And 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 you know, I, I one of the things I learned in my little experience, and so I know he would understand this well. Is that you gotta eventually come up with your core values. My core values is I go, okay, what's that and And the business people tell me it's the things that you value to operate on on a daily basis, so i'm going, all right i'm it down. and what exactly are you talking about? <laughs> I, I would have been such a terrible business student, you know now, the idea here is we always list integrity now, integrity is important today. Do you know why? Because our society, our culture in the last 10 years especially, has really um, honed in on breaches of integrity. So it all kind of started a little bit back uh, with the, um, with the uh, sexual assault that happened in various religions and, and how that was exposed and, and the cover-up. And of course, the world, you know, they love a good cover-up and, and, and exposing that. And they feel it's like their duty to expose cover-up. And what you find is there's a lack of integrity. Now, that began a ripple effect. And so everybody who was in any sort of position of authority or responsibility had had became under Came under the microscope, and we were looking for breaches of integrity or dishonesty. We were looking for breaches of morality or immorality. And as the as the as the focus beam of our evaluation got finer and finer, we could find anything in anybody. But some of it has proved tragic for us, right? I mean, one of the men that I've I've studied his writings and enjoyed his thinking, helped me tremendously. Post-death, post-passing, his integrity was brought into question. You know, that kind of sent a shockwave through the Christian community, didn't it? It shocked me and it made me scared. I don't know about you, brother. It really made me scared. I got to watch myself, right? Integrity. We have a God that never has a moment of weakness with integrity. No wonder he can decide what's right and wrong. He doesn't have temptations for morality. We call that the impeccability of Jesus Christ or of God himself. What does that mean? Well, outside of the fact that it's a great word for scrabble, it means that Jesus Christ had no propensity, no disposition, no potential to sin ever. There's some in our evangelical community would say that Jesus Christ struggled not to sin. No, he didn't He didn't have a nature. That's what we, that's what we refer to, a nature towards sin at all. James 1 is very, very clear about that. So, so obviously, he's, he's really the best person for the job, isn't he? Now, I didn't mention goodness or truthfulness because those are two more aspects of the character of God. And we, if we can extend this conference just about three more days, we could cover it all. But we won't. Now, having said that, let's move on. So, I'm just trying to talk about the basis of these things. Would you look at Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, with me for a minute? About time we got to the scriptures, huh? I know what you're thinking. Now, I was reading this this morning, and I I love it, so now you have to put up with me reading from verse 1. I want you to notice a couple things as we read this psalm down through verse nine. I want you to notice the psalmist who is David, and I want you to notice how he cannot stop extolling or praising God. And when he gets to the reason for that praise, of why he praises God or the praiseworthiness of God, you will find it lands on his character. All right, so let's read it carefully. I will extol you, my God, O King. See that? Immediately, verbally lifting him up. I will bless your name forever and ever. Whatever I can do to you, which is not very much, I will give it to you, right? Every day, see that? I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. He's, he's, he's ex- the, the timeline he's making, this will never change. This will be a policy of mine. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. All right, that's the... Specific idea of of uh, uplifting God and His greatness is unsearchable. You know what that means? You can't ever find the endpoint. One generation shall praise your works to another. That's us. That's what we're doing in this room. And you shall declare and shall declare your mighty works. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. I will think about your incredible presentation in the throne of God, the robes, the train of the heaven, of, of the, of the robes, the train of the robes of God. I will think of the angelic host singing, holy, holy, holy. I will imagine the place glittered in gold. I will imagine the rainbow over the throne and I will just simply stand there in awe which we will do in a coming day I actually look forward to that day and look at this and on your on, uh, and on your wondrous works he says I will meditate men shall speak of your might of the might of your awesome works now he's saying not only will that happen, not only will I be doing something, but others will respond. Others will, will catch, catch the, the flow of, of your presence, and, and, and they will start to say what I'm saying. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and declare your greatness, and they shall utter the memory of your great goodness. And we're going to talk about the goodness of God this weekend. And shall sing of your righteousness we sing of you. why don't we sing of his justice well they're related but righteousness is is on the poet's tongue now look at verse 8 the lord is gracious full of compassion slow to anger doesn't that sound like exodus great and mercy has said The Lord is good to all in his tender mercies. I like that. He already used the word mercy. He comes back, uses this idea of the best cut of beef, if you will. The tender mercies are all over his works. Now, verses 8 and 9 take you to his character. They describe his character in great detail. And what you find then is that the word righteousness, which is tucked in at the beginning, almost like the, the, the lead, lead sentence to the, to the little uh, 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 strophe there, uh, the poet lines, you find that, they're, the, that it's leading the, the, the charge, and then he lists all of his character aspects. This is why righteousness in the Bible is so important, because it is built on all the character of God, not just his holiness, but all the character of God. Oops. I keep swiping the wrong way. There we go. So, what I find then is that God has a way of allowing his righteousness and holiness to come together. All right? So, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Now, I know there are several who are experts in the Greek language. And I think this is a demonstration of the Grenville Sharp rule, which I think is kind of fascinating. Now that may mean nothing to you, it just sounds impressive, so I like to throw it out there. All right, verse 24. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So righteousness and holiness, they're nouns, they're singular, they're non-proper names. True would be an adjective, and the word uh, and and the idea here is that the word true has the definite article that comes before it, and apparently when that little formula is set up, then the two nouns righteousness and holiness in this text are equivalent. The same thing is shown in Titus chapter one verse thirteen, and probably Ephesians chapter four verse eleven, and so. What he's saying is that the righteousness of God and the holiness of God are on the same level. So that's why I feel like I had to talk about holiness first. This verse, I think, supports that idea. So that's the purpose of this slide. Now, obviously, I I listed a few more things, his authenticity, his equality. One of the ones I love about him is his objectivity, right? Don't you love it when somebody can really cut to the facts, right? You know, I I get a little more emotional, you know. Oh, we gotta do this because it's really bothering me. You know, and somebody comes along, they're not emotionally attached to the situation, they just give the facts and you go, how come you're such a clear thinker? And they say, because I'm not emotionally attached. Well, God has an objectivity about him. He has a decency about him. And of course, there's nothing that he says, does, thinks, exhales that is unrighteous. That's the other way to say it. Now, that verse is in Psalm 145, verse 17. I won't read it because we were just there. Now, let's, let's move on to this idea of definition. Let's get to the concept. Now, this is the word in the Old Testament, and the, you can see the root word is right behind me, right here. All right? And it has the idea of to, to be straight when we talk about God's righteousness, what is straightly cut. So there are some of us that come to life and uh, come to the life, our lives, and we're very black and white, and, and this is wrong, and this is right. And, uh, and there's no gray area. Uh, one of the classic examples is um, the speed limit. <laughs> Don't talk about the speed limit, Steve. I know, I know. But you know, the whole idea of the speed limit is safety, correct? So if you're in a, in a car and the guy's going 30 and a 60, and you're going to pass him. And all of a sudden you realize that there was a miscalculation and the guy's coming at you. Should I go faster than the sixty to get out of the way, or should I just do sixty and have risk ahead on collision? Well, clearly we would say get out of the way and get rid of the worst the the next worst disaster that could occur, even if you have to go 70, right? So so we can understand in life that, you know. There's, a, there's principles that drive the idea of what is right and what is wrong. And that comes out, actually, in the New Testament when Paul was, for example, talking about the ox that treads out the grain and he goes like this. Do you think he was only talking about the ox? I can just hear Paul. I don't think so. And he relates it to, of course, those who minister the word of God and such like that. So there's principles behind the the right angles. But the basic concept is the right angle of what is right and what is wrong. And that comes to you again in the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? Or excuse me. What about some illustrations of this, some, some texts that prove this? We'll turn to, to, well, you don't need to turn to Genesis eighteen 19. I'll just tell you that he says, I have known Abraham that he might do righteousness and justice. And so God's presence in Abraham's life is designed to elevate Abraham to this idea of the right, right standards of God. Now, in Leviticus, the same word is used, and there the concept in chapter 19.15 is the idea of no impartiality. So I'll read that very quickly just to give you the flavor of that text. Uh, So it's Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15, and it says this. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty in righteousness. And that's the, that's the Hebrew word. You shall judge your neighbor. Well, what do you mean by righteousness? Well, obviously the sentence before that, which is without partiality. Now look over in chapter 19, verse 36, just at the end of the book, you'll find this. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, honest ephah. Ephah, and an honest hen. I always thought that was a chicken, but not. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. All right, so the word honest there has this idea of righteousness. And so in this case, he is talking about integrity. He's talking about don't do something where you're going to get gained by lying to the customer, lying to your neighbor when you're trying to, to weigh out how much of product is here and how much gold is worth there. You see, this is the idea of righteousness. It's to cut it straight, to have no, no, no sense of dishonesty, but a whole sense of absolute transparency. And this is who your God is. He, he has that sort of demeanor about him. Now listen, this is important for you and I, because one of the things that righteousness speaks of, are you ready? Is Authenticity. In order for you to to, uh, follow the righteous uh, character of God, just like he indicates here truthfulness, so must you be truthful. And if that's true, then that means that you have an authenticity to your Christianity. And what I found is that in our day, we have devised several mechanisms, several electronic mechanisms, which allow us to pretend to be authentic and actually be disingenuous at the same time. That is a, a plight, a, 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 a terrible disease on the body of Christ today. And it goes back not just to this idea of, of being uh, authentic. It goes back to the idea of the right standard of who God is, as shown in his law, which demands an honest scale. Now, brothers and sisters, you have to, we have to make it our goal, our absolute mm, uh, target, our forever desire To have the transparency and authenticity that was demonstrated in the righteousness of jesus christ you see this is how he is this is how he was with his boys and this is how he is today on the throne he has that sense of honesty can you ever imagine go talking to the lord and the lord just you know uh, 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 telling you something to get you off his back that wouldn't happen He he doesn't lie. he He doesn't pretend to be something he's not. My goodness, he condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In no way, shape, or form did he have a breach of righteous authenticity. Beloved, we're doing that. We are breaching that protocol. And so we hear stories of men and women who had it uncovered. We hear stories of affairs for years. And then it ends in a divorce. We hear stories of people who gone to camp, heard the gospel, made professions of faith, have, have, have served in various capacities, and all of a sudden, walking away. Where did that come from? Well, I believe there is a breach of authentic righteousness in a soul. And I think if we get back to who God is, we'll realize that the light of his righteousness chases away any, any temptation to be disingenuous with God. You see, it's not that I'm lying to you. I'm lying to you, my Father. Have you ever been lied to before? Hurts, doesn't it? Hurts terrible. You thought our, the relationship was better than that. When we're disingenuous with our father, we're lying to him. I wonder if he's hurt as much as we're hurt when it happens to us. You know, I spend a little bit of time thinking about that lately. How much I hurt my father. See, my, fa- my earthly father's past now. When he was living with me, he was losing his mind but just because you have Alzheimer's doesn't mean you quit feeling. And one day he came to me and he was telling me how I had hurt him. Now I went back and I looked at it. I thought, I don't, I don't think I I don't think that happened. He just must be confused. And I wrote it off. Years later, which has only been two years. <laughs> I thought about that moment. I thought, it doesn't matter whether I think I was right or he was right. What matters is I hurt my dad. I hurt my dad. If that bothers you like it bothered me, how much more should it bother us that we finite little people can injure the heart of our God. And all that happens because we try to be authentic on the outside, pretending righteousness, and inauthentic on the inside. That bothers God to the core. I didn't understand it until I studied the prophets and how he said, would you quit bringing me these sacrifices? They're nauseating to me. I don't want them anymore. You spent... A large portion of the Torah talking about sacrifices. How is it that several years later you say, forget it, just drop it already? And the thing that was bad about it was not the, uh, not the rule, not the righteous direction, but it was the way we treated his command and i think we can do that today and the righteousness of god gets dumbed down and corroded and pretty much shriveled up that we don't even recognize it and how much that how much does that injure the heart of our father because that's who he is i don't think we should do that all right let's move on in the new testament whoops i did that again in the new testament what you find here is there is a claim to the um, higher authority, Uh, in other words, righteousness, I say there's a higher authority in me and I adopt that standard for me. The idea is that there's a standard, a jurisdictional standard, an overriding um, uh, uh, law that I make my own. Now that's one concept of righteousness. Another concept of righteousness is to say it this way, that you are right, that you are correct in the eyes of God's standard or God's law. That's being declared righteous. But all of it has to deal with adopting the correctness of heaven. That's what it is. Now, when we see that come forward in the New Testament, you can see it in, in some of the texts in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. For example, when it says, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's what I talked to them, talked about them a minute ago. The idea is that the Pharisees had a very um, a, a unique version of their own righteousness. I say that... What we have here is a breach of our code. <laughs> I don't know why I default to the British accent. <laughs> I, I apologize. It's just natural. I got it from Veggie Tales, or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that idea, you know, like, the pomp and circumstance of the hour. <laughs> but that's all external, isn't it? <laughs> don't ask me to do it again. I can't. But the point is, is that Christ is saying, I want more than the external righteousness. You hear that? Did you hear that? I want more than that. Your righteousness, your standard of code of conduct is not only what you do, but it's what you think. It's who you are. That's what I want from you. That's what he's saying. You see the concept? It's, it's deep in the heart. The Lord Jesus said it in many other ways, as well as Paul. He said, the circumcision is not of the external anatomy of the human body. The circumcision is dealing with the sinful flesh of the soul which was crucified on the cross with your sin. Savior, that's when you died. That, my friends, is the beginning of not only the right standing with God, which He places with you as a jurisdictional court ruling, but then He says that is standard, is what I now empower you to live through the Spirit of God who lives inside of you daily, consistently, never to leave you. So that righteousness becomes your own. You own it and it owns you. That's the idea. Of course, the opposite of righteousness in the Bible, this is illustrated in the New Testament in the parable of the unjust, which is the unrighteous, judge. And remember that, you know, the widow came, she had a case, it was a legitimate case, and 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 we don't know what it was, but apparently she was being treated poorly, and there was a law in the Old Testament that talks about taking care of the widow. So at the bare minimum in Jewish society, the judge should have done all that he could do for the widow, but he wasn't because he was self-absorbed and didn't want to be bothered. And 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 so the Bible calls him the unrighteous or unjust judge. And by comparison, or excuse me, by contrast, he's saying In other words, a righteous judge would do what's right in that moment. A righteous judge would have taken care of the widow because there was an internally driven code of conduct that God put in his soul written in the Torah, and he would follow it for that reason. Maybe that gives you a sense of the righteousness of God and and why it's so important to him. Now, we need to move on in several capacities here. So let's... uh, Let's look at how this is expressed. When I, when I say there's a righteousness in, in the laws of nature, what does that mean? Well, what I mean by that is simply this. God has determined that certain laws of nature work in a certain way. All right, let me give you this. This is fascinating to me, to you basketball people. I, I understand we had quite an NBA game last night. You know. But there's a phenomenon of basketball, which is very interesting. The ball... If you throw it at this angle, this angle here, 45 degrees, and it hits the wall, it bounces out at 45 degrees. It's 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 a perfect right angle, unless you spin it. But if you just throw it up it, it, in out right, so that's how you learn to put it in the hoop. You put it in the right angle, unless you're you know Michael Jordan, you can do anything you want. But anyway, that's the idea. Now, why does that have to happen? Why didn't he make the law of nature that if you throw it in at a 45-degree angle, it comes off at a 20-degree angle? I don't know. It's his decision. But it's a law that will happen no matter what. Same thing with gravity. Why is it that when we drop something, it goes down? Why does it go up? Boy, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? Nothing would break. <laughs> all of your wife's china would be flawless right that's kind of cool but god designed it so that in, in his or orchestration the conductorship of the universe that this is a constant and so we build theories off the constant. We build theories off the, or, or build uh, hypotheses and theories as a result off of that whole idea. This is the, the, the way God is. So what he did is he took moral conduct and he codified it in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. And he gives us this sort of, uh, I, I think you'd call it causistic, this idea of case law and, and, sets it out in 10 very uh very uh, succinct but but definitive statements and then he takes roughly Exodus chapter 20, the last half, through roughly Exodus chapter 22 or 23, and he gives us real specifics to it all, and he talks about code of conduct on a very small individual level. But see, God can do that, and this is how he expressed it. Now, the Lord Jesus comes along, and he addresses this, the law, and, and he says, well, let me tell you the the real meaning behind the law. So that if you, if you actually... Um, uh, uh, look, uh, do not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman to lust after her, that's the same as adultery. What he's saying is the law was meant to expose and deal with the heart. That's the righteous standard. And so God is infiltrating a society, culture, life with all of his righteousness, the right way to handle things, the right way to do things, the right way to think about things, the right way that you can make predictions about things. God has that aspect of his character. Now, it's not, so it's not just the laws of nature that we can predict the angle of the ball as to after it hits the wall, or that if we drop an apple, as Newton said, it will go down towards the center of the earth. God has the same concept from a moral, ethical, intangible way. Now, you have to think about that. Don't you like that? Do you know... If we don't have that sort of laws of right moral ethical code, we have anarchy. We don't have a society. Have you ever been to a country, usually a third world country in which nobody follows the traffic? <laughs> yeah? Do you ever see those photos from National Geographic and it's like all these cars going in the wrong direction at one central intersection and then you got guys going, "Get out of the way!" You know that kind of stuff? It's like New York. Now, you get code of conduct in there. You get traffic lights. You get a policeman directing traffic. And we're following the right way as deemed by an authority figure. And guess what? Nobody's getting out of their car and yelling at each other anymore. Well, maybe they're yelling at each other inside the car. But we have fluidity. We have a sense of order. We have a sense of progress. We have a sense of of things working well, like a watch. And that's how righteousness is. It isn't just the code of what's right. It's the mechanism God uses to allow life to flow, that work can be done. You live that every day. You enjoy that concept of God every time you go to work. Every time you raise a child and and you teach them what's right and what's wrong, and you teach them functionality as a code of conduct with other human beings, think about it. If by chance, not to name any names, but if by chance you, you meet a child that wasn't taught that, well, that causes chaos in the kitchen or also the classroom. And we have frustrated teachers, and we have frustrated administrators, and we have frustrated parents, and it's because the righteousness of God did not infiltrate down to that level of our society. You see, the righteousness of God is not just a concept, it's survivability. And we need the same idea in the local assembly, we need the same idea in the family, and we need the same idea in our marriages. This is why it's so important. The righteousness of God infiltrates every aspect of our human existence. All right, let's move on. Okay. Now, what I want you to see here is um, the code that God gave us, laws of nature, laws of morality and ethics in, in the Ten Commandments, and then the explanation that the Lord Jesus gave. He says this. He says it's summarized in one big principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he says to you is he's saying, as I mentioned earlier, the right things of God have a pure movement, a motivation. So that if I love you, I'm going to naturally do what's right for you because you have that much value to me. And that's what we tried to do in Kenya. Remember that? When I forced you to clean out your nose. Yeah. <laughs> Did you tell everybody that story? Not, that, not the graphic parts. <laughs> where, where, where are Kenya impri- impri- prison prisoners? Where are we? Oh, yeah. Okay, those guys raising their hands. So us four we we're trapped in Kenya with Steve Allen. Steve Allen gets the only negative COVID test he's such a warrior. He goes, I don't want to go. I said, you got to go. You get a negative one. You're stuck with us. We don't want you stuck with us. So, so he goes, and so I'm with these guys. Now these guys, they're, they're like, could be all my kids. And so they look at, they look at me and, and, and I'm the doctor and, and whatever I say, they're going to do it. Right. So I say, I think we should clean out our noses because it's a COVID test. It's in the nose. They biopsy your brain. So not really, but it feels like it. Right. And so I, I mean, we four times a day we are like, psh, psh, normal, normal saline, soap, water, hand sanitizer. We are dying. We are dying. Okay, we guys, ah, ah, ah. That's the graphic story, right? Oh my goodness, I'll never forget that. It has nothing to do with the message. <laughs> and we do it for like 36 hours straight. We go get COVID tested, and guess what? We're all positive still. <laughs> At that moment, I felt my credibility go out the window. <laughs> right? I know. You never said it, but I know what you're thinking. We had fun times, baby. That was good. Yeah, we had lots of the same food for every meal. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanna, we want to invite you to go to, was it next August? Back to Kenya, okay? All right. It had nothing to do with it. I don't know what we're doing. Let's get on. All right. So the point is, the point is, or was, that. Out of love-based foundation, I'm going to do the right thing for you. See how righteousness and love go hand in hand? I'm going to do the right thing for you because I value and care for you as if you were my own body. I would do the right thing for my own body, which is a a statement or allusion to the marital relationship. And therefore, I would do the right thing for you. And that's how God thinks. You see, he has not only what is right and the right angles involved, he not only codifies it, he not only sets it in morality, he also sets the motivation, and the motivation drives the whole bus and when that motivation is right, and when that motivation is perfect, righteousness flows. That's why the Lord Jesus said to us in the New Testament, love one another. Doesn't it make sense? It is. It does make sense. Now, the world, they can't do that. You see, what the world does, the, non, the unchristian world is... They look and they say, well, we need to, we need to have uh, the right code of conduct, so we'll have these conflict of interest statements, and we'll have this, this thing you've got to sign, and it's all legislated, and if you don't follow it, you, we call you unemployed. And it's all very forced and and threatened-based. And God says, don't you understand? I, I don't run my economy that way. I don't run my family that way. I want it to be different. I don't want you to fear what they think about you. I want you to love the other person so that you would naturally do what I would do, which is the right thing. And when the family of God can operate in that way, you know what you have? A miracle on this earth. You have God living behind enemy lines. And when that occurs in that capacity and that format, what you have is a witness that cannot be jeopardized, a witness that cannot be diminished because the scripture says you will be a light on a hill. Mm. Beloved, I think that's what we should be. So the righteousness of God has a far-reaching effect. All right, let's move on. He said 1015. He knew. 1025, I bet. All right. (laughs) sovereignty. And when we talk about God and His, uh, the implications of his righteousness, it has to deal a little bit with his sovereignty. And, he, and again, I mentioned this earlier, he has the right to be first in all things because he's made all things. He has the right in authority. Now, this is important what we're going to get to, and I'm going to mention it this way. And because of that, he has the place and authority, he also has all power. So God has the perfect character, therefore, to determine what's right. And as the one, that, the only one that can determine what's right with a pure motive of heart, he then comes to this idea of his sovereign rule, his authority over things. And in that authority, he has power. And in that power, he uses that to set the right wiseness, such as the old King James way, of describing righteousness. And with that comes obligation. And what are those obligations? Well, those obligations, number one, is to defend what is right and combat what is wrong. He has a certain defensive posture which he must take, right? Secondly, he has the responsibility to preserve the right standard, to not only only defend it, but also to maintain it. And then finally, he not only has the right and responsibility to defend and preserve it, he has the responsibility to advance it. This is the motif, this is the model of the people of God today, right? This is how we are supposed to live in our codes of conduct, So we would want to preserve it, we would want to maintain, uh, defend against it, and we would want to advance it. We do that in the family dynamic. There are certain things that happen which say we don't do that. And there are other things that happen and say "We, we do it this way because. And then there are certain things that happen in the family and say tomorrow we're going to aim here. We do the very same thing on a family level and God does the same in his family level. Now, the foundation of all this is the righteousness of God. That's in Psalm 97.2. I'll turn and read it. Brother David, I am trying to hurry for you, brother. All right, 97.2. Clouds and darkness surround him. It's describing the sovereignty of God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You see that? So as if you are king and you're sitting on the throne, those are your three responsibilities: uh, uh, preservation, maintenance and advancement. And he's saying, with this idea on the throne, this is how I must operate. So that explains why you have the cherubim, who are described as the protectors in the tabernacle. I don't need to sh- uh, go over that again, but you can see the diagram behind me and the holy of, Hol- uh, holy of holies and the holy place and the curtain with the cherubim. So that imagery comes to back. But let me, let me go to some things that would illustrate that in terms of... Uh, oops, sorry, that's I didn't want to see that one. Uh, uh, Old Testament examples, and we have several that illustrate how God is preserving, uh, maintaining, and advancing. Now, one of the most uh, graphic, one of the most graphic is Beth Shemash, Shemash, right? So that was the incident where the Ark of the Covenant was... Uh, allowed by God to be stolen or, or uh, won over by the Philistines. And the Ark of God kind of made it through the five major city-states of the Philistine empire. And every time it went somewhere, everybody supposedly got hemorrhoids, which is not very comfortable. And uh, as a result of that, they decided to send the Ark of the Covenant back to the children of Israel. So they put it on a cart. I think it was from Eglon. They put it on a cart. They sent it down up the valley, the Sorek Valley. And they, and they separated the cow mamas from the baby cows and and obviously they said, well, if the mama cows go and the baby cows stay and they still do their job, clearly this has to be of God, of Yahweh. And so the animals took the cart up there. It came to Beth Shemash, which is just up the Sorek Valley, about five miles. We go there. We stand on the ruins. We talk about the story. You go, ooh, I'll take pictures, and we move on, Right? Now, at Beth Shemesh, it says they were in the field, and they saw the cart coming up, and they, they, they then killed the oxen in the cart, and they made an offering unto God. They took the Ark of the Covenant, and it's a very short little snippet, and it says the men of Beth Shemesh looked inside the, uh, the, um, the Ark, and it says, I think it's a typo, it says 50,000 died that day. Now, that's that's. It doesn't matter if it was five, five 50, 500, or 5,000, or 50,000. That's harsh, isn't it? What'd you, we just lifted up the lid. What's wrong with that? Because there's, there's, it was a breach of righteousness. God is defending, God is maintaining, God is advancing. Remember that whole climate of the era was the judges. Uh, the beginning of the judges and just all the nastiness that was happening. And, and if, if you remember, uh, everything was in disarray. And, and everybody's concept of Yahweh was he's a charm that we sprinkle over our battles to make us win. And 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 you know the, the, there is this 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 lousiness with the with the uh with Eli the priest and his compromise. And so there was no spirituality, there was no standard, there was no right-mindedness in the people of God. And so when we get to Beth Shemash, what do they do? They do what they've been doing all along. They've been compromising the things of God, they look into the ark, and the point is this: when you approach the presence of God, which is depicted in the Ark of the Covenant, without the blood of a sacrifice, you are under subjection to your own condemnation because the mercy seat no longer covered the acts of rebellion that were depicted within the ark see it you see god's obligated to preserve maintain and advance his righteousness so why do we get upset about that with god Do you ever hear that from the unsaved? Well, God is too harsh. Therefore, my philosophy on God is that he is so loving that he'll just take everybody. It's called universalism. We'll just save everybody. Just one big Santa Claus. Hate to pop your Santa Claus bust bubble. But that would be heresy. Because that's not God. God maintains his Righteousness. And he did it with Nadab and Abihu, he did it at Beth he did it with Yuza when he reached out to touch the ark and hold it, did a good thing. God is obligated to do that. Now I want to tell you something, not only is he obligated to do that, he has to do it when it comes to the soteriologic, the salvation process. Now the dilemma there, which I have a bunch more slides but I have to summarize it, is that you're unrighteous. Chapter 2 and or 1, 2, and 3 in Romans gives four versions of how we are unrighteous, breaching God's righteousness. And in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, uh, 3, 4, and 5, God uh, the, the dilemma is God has to come up with a solution to declare the unrighteous right and never compromise his judicial seat. And there's only one way to do that to take the pure, righteous Son of God and make Him your sin. That's the only way that could happen. And in the most graphic ways, you get to see how the righteousness of God really works. That the sacrifice of a bloodied human being, Jesus the Christ, on the cross, is what the righteous standard of God demands for the sin of the world. And what that's supposed to do for you is not only save you, but it is to melt you. It is to melt you to your knees to say, my God, my God, how can you take the one who knew no sin the purity, the epitome of holiness and righteousness and make him my sin. My God, how can this be? How can you be so righteous and treat your son that way? I don't understand it and you would do so for the likes of me. And what that is meant to do is the righteousness of God is meant to bring you to your knees. Not just when you were born again, but every day since. I think we lost that. I think that's escaped us. I think what we wanna do is bring that back. You see, one of, the indi- one of the instructions to the churches in Revelation was this. Remember from where you have fallen. I think that's not an instruction just for the church at Ephesus. I think it's good for the church of the 20, 21st, 22nd century. <laughs> I think it's good for us. Remembering the righteousness of God does that very thing. Because you can't talk about the righteousness of God without talking about the sacrifice of the Savior. In the mind of God, that's what's right. But in my mind, it doesn't add up that way. I should bear my own sin. I should be removed from the presence of God, never to even ever be entered in. But my God, my God thinks differently. So the neo-atheists of this day, you got it wrong, my friend. You've got it wrong. My God is nothing Will never be anything that you say is. I'm the evidence to prove it. And he would like to make you the same evidence. Let's bow our heads. Maybe you're here this morning and you've wrestled with this whole concept of being right with God. Maybe you've wrestled with this whole concept of God's standard and it's too strict, it's too harsh. I have news for you. you can never make it. You just just don't don't even start. because God's righteousness has been put into play in such a way that He will take the unrighteous, the ones who failed, the losers of our morality and ethics, and He will declare you legitimately, judicially, right through Jesus Christ. Why are you resisting that? Why are you taking your time to put that off? Why, why is this such a foreign concept? Why are you refusing to, new, to believe what you know? I think it's time that we stop that madness too. And if you're one of those souls that are in that position, let me invite you, let me plead with you, let me beg of you, receive Christ today. Oh, Father, as we come to this hour, the end of this hour, we have to confess to you that this is the Spirit of God's work. This is the spirit of God's verbiage, his words, his his thinking, his understanding. And we want to ask you to let the spirit of God have his way with every soul. My soul too. For I have forgotten so many times what it's like to serve a righteous God and I compromise. And there are some here today who know how you have handled your righteousness dealing with me, the unrighteous. And they have been rejecting you. Oh, Father, let your spirit draw them, I pray. We commit our souls to you 100% in Jesus' name.